0: Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Hugh and Jackie Bruder. Hugh is the deputy chief of Boynton Beach Fire Rescue. He's got an extensive career in the fire service starting back in uh, the Cold War times when you started off as a firefighter in the Air Force, uh, then transitioning into um, public safety in South Florida. You retired from Miami-Dade with 27 plus years in the fire service, eventually moving into administration there with uh, Boynton Beach. Now, that's, not all that we're going to talk about today. You're also extremely involved with treatment of PTSD. Uh, you and Jackie, from from what I understand. And um, first, let's get into. Did you grow up in South Florida? Did both of you grow up in South Florida? How did you meet?
1: Yeah, it's a great it's a great story actually. You know. Um, I actually grew up in upstate New York. You know, I was a, a teenager in the 70s and, you know, I was a child of watching, uh, you know, DeSoto and Gage tear up the streets of Los Angeles, you know, on uh, Squad 51. And, you know, those were, and I think Jackie, you know. Yeah, had, you can't. You know, you can. if, if, if you paid attention, you know, it was like Star Trek and Emergency back in the 70s <laughs> that had major influence, you know, on my life. So even even in my teenage years, You know, I knew that I wanted to go the public service route. I I didn't know why. I knew it was very cool and running around, as Jackie always says, with our hair on fire. You know, (laughs) so so I knew that uh, that I wanted to get into public service. I just didn't really know the true meaning of what that meant. uh, You know, for probably about eight or ten years into my into my career. But I grew up in upstate New York. I moved down here after the from Buffalo after the dreaded blizzard of '77. And uh, which was a crazy year in Buffalo. Buffalo is a great town to grow up in. It's funny I I meet firefighters from all over the country, and a lot of times you know when I meet one that's from Buffalo, you know you have kind of a special connection in my my old hometown, the Chicken Wing Capital of the World. <laughs> but uh, but I, I actually went to EMT school while I was still in high school. You know I, I turned 18 in April, but I knew that I wanted to go into the fire service, so I, I went to Broward College in my last half of my senior year. So I literally graduated from high school, got my state license, got a job on ambulance and, and began my journey, which was, was you know, as, as you say, you know, in that era where it was very difficult to get hired on the fire department and I had taken multiple tests everywhere. I just couldn't get hired. So I said, you know, I'd always been a lover of the military. My father was a, a veteran of the Korean War. And, you know, I, I always kind of knew that would, that route would be good to go also. So I went to the Air Force. The Air Force had guaranteed jobs for firefighters. Uh, and I went in uh, 1980 uh, in the uh, Cold War, as you said earlier. It's kind of, we're, we're kind of the forgotten veterans, the Cold War era veterans. You know, I, I think that we, you know, we served, but, you know, and, you know, when you serve in the military, and God bless all my brothers and sisters out there, and everything we do now and from before you know it, it, it's for everybody it's not this isn't just for first responders what, what we're going to kind of lead into and talk about with mental health eventually but uh, but that was the beginning of a 40 plus uh, year love affair with public service uh did about three years active duty traveled throughout europe in the middle east spent another 10 years in the reserves and i actually got out uh after the first gulf war i had gotten out of the air force but i I'd gone in 1983, transitioned out of the Air Force into into public service, worked for several other small departments, Hallandale, uh, worked for Ocean Reef Fire Department until, uh, and actually when I worked for Lauderdale Lakes Fire Department is where I met Jackie Uh, back in 19, what was that, 1984? 87. 87, before I got hired out with Dade County, Jackie actually got my job when I left uh, Lauderdale Lakes. Uh, but we were both involved with other people at the time. We were both married or she was getting ready to get married. So we became, we were just very good friends for many, many years. Uh, and then in 1988, I got hired out with Dade County. Stayed there 27 and a half years. Uh, moved through the ranks, did every job there that you possibly can. Fireman, driver, lieutenant, captain, EMS captain, staffing chief, battalion chief. Um, I did contemplate moving up into administration with Dade County, but back in the in the mid I'd say early 2000s, you know, when we had that financial crisis, you know, it was very, the money really wasn't there. I had three kids in college, I should say we at the time. So, you know, it was difficult because it was a huge pay cut to go from battalion chief to division chief at that point in Bay County. You know, it's not all about the money, but when you have three kids in college and you're five years away from retirement, a $30,000 a year pay cut to take on three times the responsibility, you know, it's not, is not so good, but, you know, that's, that's sometimes the negatives of public service, you know? Right. That's pretty much how I got in. Jackie and I, as I said, met in Lauderdale Lakes. We, we kind of reconnected uh, in, in later years um, and we've been married
2: now almost 20 years. And, yeah. and Jackie, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got in? Mine's a whole different story. I grew up in Florida, so I lived in Coral Gables. I worked my way up through um, going to college and becoming an orthodontic assistant, but it wasn't mm. enough. And one day I had a female come into the job wearing a jumpsuit. Now I had a lot of friends that were firefighters, but they were all guys and there just weren't any girls in the fire service. It never dawned on me that you could, as a female, do it. And this girl walked, walked in wearing a jumpsuit with a paramedic patch on. And I went, wait a minute, what are you doing? And she told me, she was going through paramedic school and fire school and she was gonna get on the fire department. And that was the end of that. I was working full-time, going to school full-time and. Got hired with Lauderdale Lakes and met him. But it was a flash, him and I meeting. He came in, I went out. It was like... I came in. No, you came in, I went. You came <laughs> in to say hello, and I got a call, and I went out. Oh, that's true. <laughs> so he was gone, and I didn't see him again for five more years when I got Harvard-Dade County. And I started when I got hired with Dade County. Simple transition, same retirement system. The day I got hired with Lauderdale Lakes is the day I got hired with Dade County five years later. To the day. Kind oh. about, it was kind of cool. But I started volunteering with Marine Services and dive rescue and saw him in the water, you know, during training. Yeah, but I mean, back then we were, you know, we were just friends. We stayed friends for a really, really long time before we got involved. But the fire service, you know, people say it's a calling. It has to be because what you go through every day, if you don't have that in you here, you don't have that calling, you don't go into it with the wow factor, you're not gonna survive, you're not gonna make it. It's, I it's, uh, see a lot of death. As everybody knows, anybody wearing a shield, anybody wearing a uniform or a patch, anybody in the military in the fire service, anybody that is out in the streets like we were, you see the worst part of people. And it's not just the trauma, it's not the shootings or the miscarriages or the car accidents, It's it's a day-to-day stuff. It's you know the the n- domestic violence, the rape, the the breaking up of families, the, f- the three-year-old that survives the rest of her family's dying. So that military
1: that military term collateral damage. Yeah, I think we all know collateral damage very well. Yeah. You know, it's so true. It's 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 what it's what we go through and see. We see the pain of all of the loved ones and the bystanders and. You know, we, we've actually talked about this. Jackie had, had mentioned this years ago, how, you know, it seems as though in, in when we do this job that sometimes, you know, we do the best job that we can. We, we get out of the station quick. We, we get to the call. We do everything right. And they still die. Uh, and conversely, um, it takes us forever to get out. Traffic is horrible. Uh, it's a, it's a bad call or we're the only unit coming and other units... Or a know, bad address. Or a bad address and you have a delayed response. You get there, the person's unconscious, they're in cardiac arrest, you can't get the two. Everything is a debacle, but they live. So... Yeah, when the hospital they're talking to and you're like, why does that happen? So, so what's the point? The point is, is, as Jackie always talks about, you know, is that...
2: We're there for the people. We're, we're there to give them hope. We're there for them to know that They're not going through this alone, that that people care enough to be there and risk everything they've got to make things better for them. So every time we go on a call, it's not just about saving a life or delivering a baby or, or stopping bleeding. It's affecting every single person in that room. You're affecting every single person in that room one way or another. You're giving the family hope. You're giving the patient hope. You're letting everybody know, hey, somebody really cares that much to be there. So every time you go on a call, you're affecting somebody. I mean, what other job does that? I mean, Comcast operator is affecting people, but it generally doesn't work out the same way, right? This, this, that's why you have to have it here when you do the job. You have to know that some days are gonna really, frankly, they're gonna suck. But if you look at it as it affected somebody that day, whether they died or didn't die, I affected them. I held that wife's hand, I held that three-year-old's hand. I did something that, that affected them positively, let them know everything was you not know, gonna be okay. So that's what I think the job is about. And though it does affect us in negative ways and we'll get into that later and how you recognize it, but that's what got me into power service.
1: Yeah, it's it's been a, an interesting journey, you know, to say the least. I mean, between the two of us, if you think about it, Jackie did 30 years. And I have to say, I tell people this all the time and they go, oh, you're just saying that, you know, it, literally in 40 years, I, I, I've I've been blessed with working and serving with so many wonderful people. I really have. Um, and it's all about the people for me. And I, And when I talk about that, I got it at eight years. What I got was was really the essence of what Jackie was just saying. But, but additionally, um, Dave, it's, it's taking that thought and also bringing it to us. It, it, it's bringing it to that same relationship with service to the public, is a service to each other. Because, you know, your, your whole show is all about leadership. It's all about how, how can we be effective leaders? How can we change the game? How can we move the mark? Well, you can't move the mark if you're not taking care of your own people. And if each and every one of us is brothers and sisters, it's no different than our military brothers and sisters who are fighting for our country's freedom or for the freedom of other people who are oppressed. It's no different than that. If we use that military formula, which the fire service is quasi-military, A lot of our brothers and sisters don't want to admit it, but but it is. And it's that leadership from the model of the military that we carry forward, but yet we do it in an empathetic fashion. And empathy is the key to really everything we do. But some of us can't tap into it because we're stuck with all of our own stuff, our emotional trauma from childhood, our, our physical trauma from accidents that we have, And so it makes it very difficult for all of us to really function as a team in order to move the needle. You know
2: what I mean?
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: Well, what he's leading into is when we were in our last few years of the fire service, his brother developed a technology that is state-of-the-art helping people with PTSD, anxiety, depression. This technology has been studied by the military with only military personnel.
1: Actually, it was veterans. Marines, Marines the, the study was done on um, Marines at the uh, University of California, San Diego. The Veterans Administration actually paid for that study. Uh, go
2: ahead. So when we had a family member that was struggling and frankly, we didn't completely understand why. I thought maybe he's just not nice. Until his brother came over and sat and talked to that individual I'm talking about and he said, it's not that he's not nice. He's he's suffering from PTSD or possibly even concussion syndrome. We we're like, what? And he walked us through the steps of recognition. that We had seen every single day at work, but thought, oh, that guy's just burnt out. He's been on the job too long, you know? He, he needs a break off rescue. He needs to take a little time with his family. He needs to regroup. Those were all the things I used to hear all the time. And it didn't strike me that, wait a minute, That guy just didn't need time off. That guy needed somebody to hear him. That guy needed to be recognized. Someone needed to notice what was happening and none of us were doing it. We don't do it until somebody goes, I think I'm gonna put a bullet in my head. And then we're like, oh, really, bro, what's up? But all that time, we're just kind of brushing it off, not recognizing it. And when his brother said it to me, I was like, tell me more. And that's what he did. Not only did he teach us more, he treated that family member and within two months, he was a completely different person. Happy, not angry, productive, going to school full time. He became a firefighter. the a paramedic now and he works on the job. And this is a guy that was spinning his wheels and not going anywhere. And we didn't even recognize him as happening in our own house. So and that's, he- when, that's when everything changed for me in the fire service because I was captain. Now I started paying attention when I went to work. And I started seeing the guys who were coming in angry, seeing the guys that were not doing their job well. And you think they're not checking out the truck, they're not mopping the floors, they're not doing their job, they're just lazy. No, they're struggling. So instead of, so bro, you need to take a day off or you need to you know, straighten up or what's your problem, man? Or
1: tough it out. That's a big one in our, in our business. Come on, man, tough it out. This isn't PTSD.
2: I stopped doing all that. I took him into the office and I sat him down I said, yo, man, what's going on? Are you okay? Is, is everything at home going okay? And I was shocked at the responses I was getting. They actually let me in. And the guys were crying in my office. They let go of all this stuff they had been holding onto, but nobody had asked. We're so good at asking all the questions. We're so good at finding out what's wrong with all our patients and getting to the bottom of it. But when it came to our own guys, we weren't paying attention. We weren't, we weren't aware. It's It's not that we weren't paying attention, we just didn't understand. And that, and that actually
1: kind of went hand in hand with, you know, this is going back about 11 years ago. So if you go back and any of you listening, you know, anyone in the audience, any first responders, everybody knows today, there's been a a tremendous, a wonderful, tremendous push from uh, the IFF, from a lot of nonprofit agencies, from a lot of governmental agencies to do exactly what Jackie said, to, to help all of us understand what PTSD is, how it affects us as first responders, um, and and educating us so that we can be there for each other. So that, to me, when you look at this big picture, that was kind of the first step, right, was, was recognition. It's what we do in the fire service. We, you, you go into a fire, what's the first thing you're gonna do? You're gonna recognize what you have, you know, and then you're gonna formulate your tactics and your strategies based on what you see. So. It, The fire service, naturally, we're all macgyvers So naturally, you know, that's the direction we went was let's start educating our people. The problem is, is that over the last 10 years and and God bless the mental health community. There's so many wonderful, wonderful clinicians out there. The problem is, is that exactly what my brother discovered in his research, in the work he had been doing for so many years before he developed IASIS was that there weren't enough tools in the tool bag, the mental health tool bag. So over here, you've got this group of first responders who, okay, great, now we're recognizing it, right? We're we're being taught what to do. We're now all becoming more empathetic, that we're all shedding kind of that tough skin and tough exterior and beginning to realize we have to talk to each other. We have to engage. We have to be there for each other more. Well, we did that. We're doing a wonderful job all over the country right now at that. I mean, right now, in fact, uh, you know, there's there's grant money for every fire department's for the locals to get money for PTSD. So there's a lot of money out there, but there's still a problem when you go from recognition to to the treatment side. Uh, that and that's a big issue. And the only issue, the only reason it's that way is. You know, well, one, because you know, we all know in the medical field there's a lot of egos. You know, the fire department's rampant with ego, but and so is the police department and the military. And that's great. We need ego sometimes. Ego's not a bad thing, right? If it's channeled in the right direction. But but the medical, the upper level medical community, the ego is probably a little bigger than ours, I think. And so so and it's not it's not to diss the mental health community, it's that our job now becomes one of recognition. So, so, as this development of ISIS was happening, at the same time, unfortunately, I lost a lieutenant in my command to suicide. Uh, this was a wonderful human being, his sister's on the fire department, he was a, uh, an, a war vet from uh, the Gulf War, uh, an army veteran who came into the fire service, and there's a lot of military veterans in the fire service. And, you know, it became too much. His PTSD, his anxiety, his depression became too much. And no matter what we did, we, we couldn't save him. Uh, but the reason we couldn't save him is because there weren't the tools in the tool bag. So, so here we are engaging it. The tools aren't there. So now we're beginning through this journey. Once I lost Mike, my, my journey began, began to be how can I move the needle? How could I change? So again, we go back to leadership, leadership in any, in any form is recognizing a problem and figuring out how to fix it. You know, there's an old saying in the fire service, don't bring me your problems, bring me your solutions. So, so, so you've you've probably heard that a thousand
2: times.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: (laughs) Um, so in, in therapy, conflict yeah. is change trying to happen. I, I really I love that one conflict, conflict changed, is change, change,
1: trying to, happen. trying to happen. But, but it's, it's, it's then become How do we now educate the mental health professionals and and, and the fire departments to realize so and there's all these changes changes are coming so rapidly. Um, so When we both retired in 2015 from Dade County, I had had 35 years and she had her 30 years in fire service. Um, I stayed involved in Dade County's um, mentor program. It's kind of the reserve program. program. And for that five years, I was teaching classes, running calls. Uh, I'd go in and I'd mentor junior chiefs, which basically means I'd go in on a Sunday morning, I'd cook the guys breakfast, and then I'd run some calls and hang out. And it was a wonderful, wonderful program that, you know, that Dade County Fire Department uh, allowed to happen so that, you know, us retired folks that didn't wanna just kind of fade away could, could still be use. So when we retired, we, we really focused full bore on changing the needle, educating the fire service, using this technology to treat and to eliminate symptoms of these horrible things and to help our members to survive, you know, the the, the, the death rate, the, the suicide rate is astronomical. Uh, you know, more, as you know, and, and as you know, we've taught and, and lectured, more first responders die by their own hand for the last three or four years than, than in the line of duty. Uh, that actually was a study by the uh, Behavioral Health Alliance, uh, you know, that's that's just brought out
2: some stunning statistics. You know That's where we come in. So I do it full-time now. We have an office in Weston. I use ISIS on... Firefighters are probably 70% of my patients. And they're not just my age firefighters. They're firefighters all over. They, They drive from Naples, from Palm Beach, from Pinecrest. People drive an hour and a half, twice a week to see me because they've done it all. They've done the therapy. They've done the IFF center for dependency on drugs or alcohol because some of them had been that was their drug of choice to turn the noise off. And they've they've resorted to everything that they could possibly think. Nothing was working. They were you know, they were actually even some of them on psychiatric meds, depression meds that in some cases were making it worse. So unfortunately, we were usually. The last line of defense. They were exhausted, had done everything, family members. Sometimes I'd get a call, I got a call on Friday from an officer whose firefighters in crisis. They would call me and say, What do I do? How do I manage this? How am I going to get them there? How do I even get them to therapy? They, they, they're, they're desperate for a direction, they're desperate for a resolution. And when they come to us, it changes everything. I mean, in a couple of sessions, they're already starting to feel better. They're sleeping, which firefighters don't do very well, right? Because the rhythm is destroyed from the 2448. And then they finally get to rest and they can't rest. They can't sleep. Their mind's running. So they have insomnia, they have anxiety, they're more scattered brain, they, they can't think straight. They find themselves starting to isolate. I had a firefighter that had everything 30 years retired, house paid off obviously dropped money in the bank. His kids were about to graduate high school. He had everything, right? As they say, he had everything a guy should want. He hadn't left his house in a year, one year. He sat at home with his dog and his wife for a year. And he finally heard about one of our presentations that we put down at the union hall and he came. He came because he had done it all and nothing had worked. And he thought, if I don't do something, I'm gonna bite that bullet and I don't wanna do that. And he came and he trusted us. He tried us to, us to make his life better and it didn't come easy for him. He did 20 sessions, 22 sessions. It took him a while. But I tell you what, after he was done with us, FaceTime you know, I got him on, on Facebook, he's never home. He's out playing golf, he's all over the country now. I see him and he's really enjoying his life. Which he wasn't doing before he came to us. So ISIS is one of those things that shouldn't be at the end of the line. It should be at the beginning of the line and it doesn't have to be just for the firefighter with the PTSD who is sitting at home and been there for a year. I get housewives that have you know had sexual assault as a child is now going through a divorce or something happened to their children or, I mean, everything is cumulative. Every trauma your body goes through is cumulative. It's like a box. It goes in there. Something happens to you and you're like, oh, I I can't deal with that. So you put it in the box, you set it away. After a while, your subconscious explodes that I can't handle this anymore. So you have an anxiety you don't understand. You're not eating, you're not sleeping, you're not engaging with your children, you're unhappy, you can't feel joy. And that's not just for firefighters, military personnel. I mean, think about the things that they see. And that's not even talking about the concussions they're sustaining. We haven't even touched on that. So
1: so if I may, I'm gonna I'm gonna share with everybody some really interesting statistics that you know I think a lot of your listeners have probably heard that the the numbers, depending on what Uh, statistical data you look at will say anywhere from about 22 to about 32 percent of first responders suffer ptsd what what we've discovered on this journey the last 11 years um, is just really astounding in so many areas but what we have found is that those numbers become more astronomical when you serve in the military or you have head injuries so that 30 percent, and, and the number actually is hovering right now statistically from my recent research at about 30 to 32 uh, percent across the board, and, and, and mainly we're dealing with the you know uh, municipal departments. I don't think it's quite as rampant in the volunteer departments. They don't probably deal with as much of the call volume. But if you just look at the overall statistics, about 30 percent of first responders, police, and fire uh, suffer PTSD. Now, if any of those individuals have served in the military. And it doesn't necessarily have to be wartime military. That number even increases if you served wartime or actually saw battle or action or had to deal with death firsthand. But that number goes to 50%. And if any of those first responders who uh, also served in the military and had a head injury, those numbers go to a whopping 72 to 75% of first responders suffering PTSD. So the numbers are astronomical. And, And what do you do with that? So that's really the kind of the main reason after learning everything we've learned, walking this path the last 10 years, uh, leaving in 2015, staying involved, but but moving more towards, you know, as we like to say, first responders, helping first responders. And so that whole time, I, I kept trying to get back into the fire service. And the reason I wanted to get back in as a senior manager is because, again, I wanted to use what I've learned. I wanted to try to to change the needle, to move the direction. And to me, when I see so many firefighters coming to see Jackie and mended Minds and getting IISIS, I'm saying to myself that, how how do we achieve um, allowing recognition, you know offering recognition to where the mental health professionals understand this correlation. but but at the same token, Who's going to pay for it? You know, that's the difficulty. Right now in our country, there's a tremendous bias um, on these types of technologies from insurance companies. The Veterans Administration actually um, is really taking it very seriously since there's been such tremendous results with IASIS. And so they funded the studies. The the military is looking at purchasing hundreds of these systems uh, to put in VA centers around the country once this current study is being done. But the point is, is that with my, not only my fire service experience, but my mental health experience, now I can really change the game. You know, I have to, I'm just so blessed. I have to tell you, you know, I think anyone who lives a life of service and takes it seriously, um, gets a lot of blessings back in their life. I do, as much as we suffer a lot, we're also very blessed. And and so to bring that blessing forward to help it move forward. and. I was blessed again that the city of Boynton Beach saw in me what I bring to the table. They they saw 40 years of of leadership and of military service and of being a first responder, but they also saw and understood um, my mental health initiatives. And and that really encompasses a whole nother level, Dave, because the the work that I've done with Dr. Dudley Tuning, who's a renowned uh, mental health professional um, in Louisiana. Uh, Dudley actually was uh, an Air Force A-10 fighter pilot who wound up having a stroke and had to pension out of the Air Force. So what does a guy do like that? He goes back to school and he becomes a therapist and he begins to work with first responders and his brother and sister veterans. So Dudley and I met years ago. Um, when uh, when I was ISS's lead instructor before I came back to the fire service, and I was teaching folks how to use this technology, and I met Dudley, trained him on how to use the system, and you know Dudley and I be, be, became very close and started this collaborative effort. In fact, uh, Dudley and I about seven or eight months ago published a, a paper uh, on um, critical incident stress management peer support because you know not only do we need to continue as we move forward just like we do out there guys and gals when you're out there trying to improve your department when you're out there educating yourself when you're getting iso ratings when you're getting accredited when you're moving our profession forward in a professional way um we also have to look at those other aspects so what i began to do with dudley's help after we wrote this paper was realize that there's a tremendous flaw within the critical incident stress management system right now in our country. And, um, and it, has, it has gone unnoticed. Uh, so once we discovered this, um, we began to bring it forward. And I have to tell you, our, our city right now is one of two in the country that have had the foresight, that have had the, the moxie, if you will, to, to listen, to, to understand what it is we bring to the table and formulate a mental health program that is like nothing else in the country. Uh, two, San Diego and Boynton Beach Fire Rescue have the two best mental health programs. And it's because the city, it's because the individuals who are in control of budgets and hiring and of risk management, they, they see the benefit of making sure we treat our people. And you know, it's not just, it's not just about us. You know, within within the CIM structure, CISM structure, uh, an extremely important component is peer support, and and granted there are peer support teams throughout the country, but uh, but it's how you develop a peer support team, how you bring that peer support team forward, you know, which is important, and we can get in back into that in a minute. But I wanted to kind of jump back over to the CISM. So, what what Dudley recognized and and taught me that I've brought forward is that if we don't pre identify um, a first responder's trauma, then if we put them into a CISM setting, we actually can do more harm than good. Um, and, And again, that boils back to what Jackie was saying. You know, these traumas, they're all compartments within our mind. We conveniently put them in their place. So when you go into a CISM briefing, you've got uh, every type of person possible in that room. Today, the fire service, as it should be, is a microcosm of our community. So when we go into these CISM briefings, you have uh, a woman, a man, you, you have um, an African-American, a Latin, you, you may have somebody from India or Asia or, you know, Jamaica, or you have transgender now in the fire service. So the point is, is that uh, in the beginning of CISM, it was very heavily religious based where the clergy and the chaplaincy was running it because there was a vacuum, there was no one else to do it, right? So chaplaincy was the, the main, but when you fast forward to today, chaplaincy has to have a very, very, very particular role within the CISM structure. Um, It's a support and ancillary role. And that is because if we look at it, if if we bring it forth in a a religious space, in a CISM debriefing, if you have one atheist in the room who's on the edge, who's suffering from addiction, PTSD, anxiety, and depression, and you begin to present your CISM in, in in a religious manner, you can lose that person. So not to say we're not faith-based individuals, we are. We believe in God and we're very faithful individuals, but when it comes to saving our men and women's lives, you you have to do everything you can. And and so that means changing the way in which we look at CISM. So now bringing in this new information from Dr. Chuning, um, I've actually developed an entirely new CISM type of program that we've incorporated and that I'm sharing with fire departments all over South Florida that allows bringing in mental health professionals who are trauma trained, these are individuals, this isn't just your your basic marriage therapist, this is a therapist who's been certified and trained in in, uh, first responder trauma. Uh, And together with the right modality to help to change the neuro and biochemical uh, freeze that's occurring from these traumas. That's the first thing. And then bringing the mental health side in. So part of that, Dave, is to have our folks do an annual mental health evaluation. Now that's that's a tough one, right? Because a lot of first responders say, well, if I have a mental health evaluation, you know, um, I may get pulled off the job. I don't want to let anybody know. I'm too proud. I can't do that. So that's why they're still keeping it inside. But through what we've been able to accomplish, we build trust. We build trust that our members realize that administration has their back. The municipality has their back. They've developed programs. They've understood that in order to protect and serve and take care of our own people, we have to budget for it. We have to budget and create mental health programs within each of our departments to properly fund our members' mental health. So, you know, that's kind of the stuff we've been doing, you know, not only just as we've been moving forward and Jackie on the treatment side, but me trying to help our brothers and sisters in the administrations in departments all over South Florida, that it's our responsibility as leaders to take that mental health of our members to the next step. You
2: know, know, we've we've spoken a lot about Mental health, we've spoken a lot about ISIS and why we did it and why we're doing it and how it affects people, but they haven't explained what ISIS is. Explain what I'm like, sure people on the other side right now going, what the heck did they do with that ISIS? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: I was gonna I was gonna ask for clarification on, on a couple of different things. Sure. Um, first was can you define ISS? how that technology was developed, some of its history, history? Um, and I'm guessing it's an acronym.
1: Actually, no, the name uh, the name ISS, uh in other languages has different meanings. Um, if you look at some ancient Hebrew text, the, the word actually means process, uh, which ISS is a process, this, this whole mental health Picture, if if you will, actually, it, it's the health wheel in general. You know, you have your mental health, you have diet, you have lifestyle, you have exercise, and then you have technology, technology that helps to to take you to that next level. Uh, so, iasis actually means process, or uh, in in the Greek, eisus means to uh, to help, to to be of assistance, to assist, to assist. Uh, so that's uh, that's the name and microcurrent neurofeedback actually is um, it's very very interesting technology. Um, biofeedback in itself has been around since the 1950s. Uh, we've all heard about biofeedback and and today uh, traditional biofeedback is still being done. Uh, a lot of companies that do brain mapping and do some other things. There's different devices out on the market and and every device has its you know we we never. When we talk and we speak of technologies and bringing them into the, you know to the use for our people, um, every one of them has benefit. Um, every biofeedback system, whether it's microcurrent, low dose, whatever they are, they, they all have their their uses. But the way I try to describe it, Dave, and then we'll get into the science a little more, but, but the way I describe it is, you know, when I talk to people, especially in the first responder community, if you look at your life pack that you're using right now, um, back in the day, I used to use a life pack five. That goes to show how old I am. <laughs> and and I can- Gage. You, Johnny Gage. <laughs> Johnny life pack five. Uh, but clear, but, but, but see, so the, the, the thing is, is that technologies improve, technologies change. And um, from the 1950s forward, it was about the 1970s or 1980s where Individuals who were scientists and uh, folks that were developing these technologies realized that um, if we incorporate a little bit of energy, so what biofeedback does is biofeedback, you put some leads on your head and there's a machine attached to a computer. And basically the the machine is able to look at your EEG, it's able to look at your brain wave, your alpha, your your delta waves, and it's able to then uh, feed that signal back to you. And while you're doing that you're looking at a computer we we call traditional biofeedback operant conditioning, because you have to participate. You're looking at a, uh, you know, a picture of something that would bring um, emotion to your mind and then you're basically through the work with the biofeedback you're retraining your brain. So what my brother did is as he was using traditional biofeedback and then moved on to low energy neurofeedback devices, he realized that even the low energy was putting a little too much energy. Now, when we talk energy, we're talking minute amounts of energy. In fact, IASIS puts out a million times less energy than your cell phone. So you're holding three watts of energy to your head, but IASIS is actually putting out uh, a million times less but it's thought to travel through neural pathways in the brain and to be able to help shift that biochemical, bioelectrical activity that is the, is the negative aspect of what we've been talking about. That's what, that's
2: what happens, so. What he's saying is people who have the same symptoms as we were talking about earlier, anxiety, depression, insomnia, people that are self-isolating, they're all having the same symptoms of PTSD if you are having all those symptoms so the same thing is happening to every person's brain so let's say for example you break your leg you break your leg and you think oh it's not that bad i'm not going to go take care of it i don't want to be on light duty forget that i'm going to just rough it out that leg get any better oh no it doesn't get better over time it gets worse and then you end up having to have surgery to have it repaired so ice is the same concept it's been through all this trauma And it's shifting the way your brain is working, so it's no longer working the way it was before. So now you have a broken leg inside your head.
1: I everybody's
2: experiencing the same thing. Exactly. It's it's if we could look at it like that, as opposed to looking at mental health as oh that guy's a psych patient, you you don't want to get around that guy. No, it's the same thing as the broken leg. Everybody's exhibiting the exact same symptoms. They're all having the exact same thing happen to their brain just at different times, in different situations that created it. So somebody might have had a rape as a child who didn't recognize it. Over time, things have happened. They haven't been able to cope with it. So then one day they just, I've had enough, The brain can't take it. They start having anxiety attacks. They stop sleeping. They stop eating. They start drinking. So that person had years of trauma where one guy could have been on a call and see a baby die. And that could have just been enough for him to have start having symptoms but it's still the same thing happening to all the people so the brain is shifting exactly. it's not working the way it was before isis goes in there gives a little bit of energy and shifts it back to the way it was before so
1: it's as simple as that it is and i and i like simple as that and i like to meta- metaphorically compare when i talk to people i like to metaphorically compare um, a, a 23-year-old college gal who has a tremendous amount of pressure and stress to succeed. But, but let's say she was sexually abused as a child. You know, one in five women are sexually abused and one in six men, six, are sexually abused at some point in time. By that. the age of 18. By the age of 18. So but what, what I do is I, I like to metaphorically compare this college gal to a war veteran who has seen horrible traumas and maybe has suffered a, a traumatic, a mild, moderate traumatic brain injury. Maybe they played football, they had concussions, maybe they got blown up in their Humvee. Both of these individuals, even though they're pretty far on the spectrum, right, of their experiences in life, they share the same symptoms. They don't share the same nightmares, Dave. We know this. Because as I've told this before, some of my veteran brothers go, oh, you know, come on, don't compare me to a college gal. And I'm like, guys, understand, I'm not comparing you to a college gal. What I'm merely helping to teach you is that your symptoms are the same, your nightmares are not. We know this, we understand this. But why are your symptoms the same? Your symptoms are the same because as we go through these traumas, the head injuries, the physical and emotional traumas, I'll, I'll, and I'll get a little technical for your techies in, in your audience. <laughs> so, what what happens is, is you actually have this is a this is a documented this is uh, image based and and clinical evidence of this occurring scientific and clinical evidence. So, once you have trauma, you actually have a slowing down of the delta wave in your brain. When when we slow delta, delta is the wave that's responsible when you sleep to regenerate your brain. So among many other things. So, but when we slow Delta, we begin to have a cascade effect occur. So uh, you slow Delta. Now, as a result, you actually have axon damage, AXON. Axons help carry our impulses through our brains, right? To get those signals out. This beautiful God-given body that we have, what happens when you have axon damage is our bodies respond by dumping massive amounts of sympathetic neurotransmitters into our body here's the problem right here dave this is where the pro this is the essence of the issue is that it's the cortisol it's the norepinephrine it's these these wonderful neurotransmitters that we need in our body but what they're doing is they're putting us into fight or flight or what we call sympathetic freeze. And as a result of being in sympathetic freeze, as a result of high levels of cortisol, now you have disorder symptomology and gone untreated an accumulation of such sleep issues, anxiety, depression, uh, addiction. Let me tell you right now, there was a study by the federal government Uh, It's the, it's the government, I forgot the name, AMS, AMSA, I forgot what what it stands for, but um, I actually compiled some data from them that suggests that over 50% of paid municipal firefighters have reported binge drinking in the last week. 50%. That's a stunning number. Now, why is that? It's because it's the only way they can drown out the coursing of cortisol in their bodies. And, and gone untreated, these high levels of sympathetic neurotransmitters can actually exacerbate or make worse disease process. Inflammation, cancer, heart disease, all of these things are, are, are negatives from these high levels of, of sympathetic neurotransmitters. So here's where Neurofeedback comes in the right technology and granted there are a lot of technologies out there. They all have some benefit with different percentages of efficacy. And permanence, but we have found that state of the art life pack that we want to buy for every one of our trucks. That's it. We found that piece of equipment. What happens when we get a new piece of equipment. We want to get it for our people, right. I don't want to use the life pack five. I want to use the life pack 50 it's the best one out there. So through this journey of ours. We've found Isis and what Isis does Dave is amazing. It sends these tiny little impulses of energy into the brain tiny, but it's those tiny impulses that allow an interruption of the sympathetic neurotransmitter flow. That's all it's doing. It's interrupting the flow and by interrupting the flow, Going back to our God-given body, how does the body respond when you interrupt the flow? It responds in kind by dumping parasympathetic neurotransmitters. The ones that we know when you work out, when you meditate, when you have sex, these are, they are feel good, right? When you work out, when you meditate, you feel great, but it doesn't last. When you, you know, you have a couple cocktails, ah, I feel good. You're suppressing that, but when you But when you have the parasympathetic shift, and then you do it session after session after session, it becomes permanent. Just like your traumas were permanent, this technology is permanent. To The point where once we begin to see symptom reduction, now the clinician can observe emotional release occurring. So would you talk it about it? happens right this? in the chair. J- Jackie actually has this great term that's been that's now all over the ISIS family, which is ISIS does what?
2: ISIS opens? Waltz. ISIS opens Waltz. You'll see a person come in through the first day. First of all, they're anxious that they're there. Right? They've got a lot of anxiety to begin with. They're living in fight or flight. And we know most and every firefighter knows. You need fight or flight when you're having to respond to a fire, you're in a critical incident where you're trying to protect your life, protect others. But living in that, imagine living like that all the time and not recognizing it. So they come in, they're usually very anxious, hypervigilant, shoulders are up, very alert. They're they're nervous, they're uptight, they haven't been sleeping, they're tired, you can tell they're restless. Do a little talking, kind of find out a little bit about their background. You know, what's happened to you? They wanna understand a little bit of what happened in their lives because ice is gonna open that vault regardless. It's gonna let it go. Those people are gonna have emotional release and sometimes they'll just start crying. They'll call me two days later crying and they don't know why. It's because they're having that emotional release. They're shifting. But sometimes it happens right in the chair. After the first exposure, I put some leads, I put, Leads that stay right in front of the ears and one on the neck. And then I have two that revolve around the head. Two here and then they'll move and they'll move here and then they'll move and they'll move here. So I move them around the head to stimulate all parts of the brain. And all of a sudden you'll see them and they're sitting back the Shoulders chair. drop, right? Shoulders drop. Shoulders drop, drop. <clears throat> they get more relaxed. They stop talking excessively. They're calm. Some people have even actually told me they feel a little high. So we've just stopped that flow of cortisol. We've given them that like, permission to relax and they actually have no control over it. It just happens. And what the beauty of it is, people that go to therapy and, and, and I love therapy. It's the best thing that people can do. They're doing it at the same time because they're getting that emotional release from us. And then they get to speak to a professional, learn how to cope. With those things that they have buried inside for so long, so the therapist helps them with coping skills. Gives them
1: the tools. Gives that's them the tools. what. That's what. They, that. Thank God for the mental health community. We we can help shift them, but but they give those those mental health professionals. God bless them. They they'll give them the tools. But but you can't. And and it's what you know. Dr. Tuning and I wrote you know in our collaborative work. It, you know if you go for talk therapy while you're in fight or flight. Yeah, you're going to get some benefit. Yeah, there's a lot of great work that's been done in the mental health community. But what we wind up seeing is, is they go for so many sessions and then there's a large recidivism rate where they wind up back, right back where they were.
2: And like, like firefighters. I mean, look what we do. We do it fast. We do it with our hair on fire. We love that. Go, go, go. Go to therapy and you're in therapy for two or three months, and you're just starting to feel a little better. Well, with Isis, you're feeling better right away. And that's what people want. They want to know that something's going to happen. They want that, that, they want that release. They, they want to be calm again. They want to feel happy again. I call it bringing back childhood. Because when you were a kid, you'd run around and you'd play in the dirt with a hose and you were happy. Like Nothing bothered you. That's what we're trying to get back to. Bring back the happy. Bring back happy. Take that burden off of them so that they can actually feel happy again, enjoy what they're doing, enjoy their life, enjoy their kids, actually spend time with their family and not feel like they have to get up and move all the time, which is what we're used to doing because a lot of us are in fight or flight all the time. We're trying to take them off it so that they can relax and actually enjoy life. And if you don't do that in a certain period of time, you're going to lose those guys. And that's what happens. They go to the IFF and they get some help and they get a lot of therapy and they may even get on meds. They may get some form of neurofeedback. But then they come back into this reality that they're in and the happy isn't there. So they find a way to get the alcohol in. They start to drink again. They start to be unhappy. And, and they do stupid things. And it's not their fault. They're, un- they're not in control of what they're doing. They're not making smart decisions because they can't. There's another one of
1: your sayings about the job. Yeah. This leads into the job. The job taking the job He's
2: taking their job. I can't tell you how many firefighters have come into my office and they've been fired. They've been fired because of alcohol and drug use. Department never said, "Well, why are you using?" They'll send him to a rehab, but why are they using in the? first place. Until we can find the reason why and deal with that, can we even manage the problem? ISIS opens those vaults and allows them to go, oh my god, I I had a girl who was 28 years old, didn't remember anything before 12, age 12, nothing. She didn't remember elementary school, she didn't remember any of her teachers, any of her friends, nothing. I was like, that's okay. Some things that happened to her obviously she's blocked it out after her eighth session she was in at her therapist appointment and she had a breakthrough and she realized she had been sexually assaulted and it was a family member that she was seeing on a regular basis so she had blocked it out because she didn't know how to manage the family member because if she told her parents this was a family member she told her parents that family member is going to get x'd out and it was her mom's brother, what do you do with that? So what did she do? She blocked it out. It was affecting every aspect mm-hmm. of her life, every at her health, everything. Isis brought it up. She was able now, she was able through the therapist to cope with the trauma she had been through. The same asked. situation I had with, I had a, I had a, a girlfriend, had a daughter similar age as mine and she stopped, Stopped seeing her. She, she wasn't coming with her to events and things that we were doing. And so I said to her, I said, So where's your daughter? What's been going on? And she tells me, Oh, she's not, she's not leaving a room, she's not participating in an after school activities. She's she I was checking off my list, checking it off. And when she was done describing what was happening to her daughter, I said. You know, this is going to be very difficult to hear, but you consider the fact that maybe she's been sexually assaulted. And her eyes got this big, and she said, how did you know? And I told her, you just told me. Recognition. She didn't recognize it in her daughter. She had to find out from the school, because her daughter told her best friend, who told her teacher, who told the school. And so that little girl was so traumatized that she just shut herself out. 15 sessions of ISIS, and you should see her now. She was able to release what had happened to her. She went through therapy and she's all over the place now. Super happy because there was a process that happened. It wasn't ignored. Our fire service, needs to change the way they look at mental health. They need to do it, look at exactly as they look at physical health because it's exactly what it is. It's a physical problem. Stop thinking of it as a psychological problem, it's not. It's a physical problem that's happened through life. And life is hard, we know that. Life is going to, at some point, affect every single person. But if you recognize that it's happening, and you catch it early, which is what we're trying to help the fire service see when people start to call in sick too much or start to get in fights at work or start to not do their job where they were before. Don't call him a lazy fireman, what's his problem? Have a conversation, bring him in, listen to the guy. Really dig deep and find out because you're saving his life. You're taking that bullet out of his mouth.
1: But the problem is, and again, we we go back to what what really does happen though. And and you know, I, I told you before, there are very few departments. Yes, they have everybody has a risk management, everybody has therapists on staff, you know. So as an administrator, when you have an employee that's having a difficult time, and I don't have any mental health experience, and all I know is what I've been taught in terms of from the IFF and the current best practices of recognition and what do we do? So as an administrator, I have so many things on my plate. What, what do I do? I, I'm trusting as an administrator, just as anyone would in that leadership position, that there's other people that are, they have our back. So, so now I'm gonna go to risk and I'm gonna say, okay, well, I've got this person that's having problems. Can, can we do it? So, but what, what, what really happens? What happens is we discipline the employees we fire them and you know ultimately you know they harm themselves or or you know it's it's ruins their marriages but if we if we take ownership this is this is what i'm trying to do here with departments all over the country where we can start like let's say at the NFPA level where you know the NFPA has some wonderful wonderful stuff on mental health but again all the stuff that's right now in writing on mental health stops at we turn it over to risk we we turn it over to the professionals because we trust that those professionals have our best interest at heart but the problem is is a lot of these risk management bureaus and a lot of these cities and municipalities they don't have First responder trained therapists, so they're just going to send you to a therapist. They're going to send you somebody that may be experienced in trauma, that may be experienced in sexual trauma, or experienced in family counseling, or some of these other areas. But are they really the ones that we need? So, so the point I'm bringing out is just as the, just as we, as fire service professionals, have special ops trucks, just like we have hazmat units and technical rescue bureaus, and we have dive bureaus, we have all these specialties that we we budget for and that we facilitate to do our job better. Well, we as managers have to take ownership of our members' mental health. We can't trust anymore, Dave. We can't trust anymore that these entities beyond fire service administration and management are gonna have, are gonna be able to take care of us. They're gonna to try to have our back. They have our best interest at heart, but, but they just don't have the tools in the toolbox. So, we're trying to educate not only the mental health professionals on these correlations between physical and emotional trauma, the incorporation of uh, an ISS type of neurofeedback system with talk therapy. And over here now, from the fire service side, it's taking that to the next step, taking all that wonderful work that everybody's done in the fire service to this point and taking it to the next
0: level. It occurred to me that as you're describing ISIS, it seems like there are some similarities to EMDR and how EMDR works. Would you agree with that or?
1: Absolutely, and, and, and this is I'm glad you brought up EMDR um, because I, I have this conversation with many, many, many mental health professionals. Um, EMDR is an absolutely tremendous uh, modality, but EMDR actually is for single event trauma. Um, there is no first responder on this planet that is the product of single event trauma. Um, so you can actually cause some harm, and I've been I've been very diligently educating mental health professionals down here in South Florida. Um, you know, on the usage of the MDR. And it, and it has usage. It's very it's very valid. There's a lot of mental health professionals that use it. In fact, I know a lot of first responders who have had experience with the MDR. Um, but it just hasn't gotten them to the finish line. You know, it, it's, you know it's like uh, Elway at the 20, throwing that pass down the field. And, you know, the guy catches it on the 20-yard line. and gets creamed you know, and he gets tackled and doesn't make the touchdown. So what happened? He moved 80 yards, 60 yards down the field, but, but he didn't cross the line. We, we want to take our people past the line because that 80%, that 60%, it, it's not enough, not enough to get in there. So EMDR, very, it's wonderful modality. Uh, it just, in my humble clinical opinion of 10 years of working with IASIS is, And thousands and thousands of sessions, and seeing a lot of different first responders, police, fire, military, that, in terms of efficacy for multiple traumatic events, um, I believe it has a specific place.
2: What he's saying about getting to the touchdown is, ISIS isn't for life. You don't, know Some people go to therapy, and they're, you know, they have a set once a week, twice a month. They're a therapist. They're talking about therapists their whole life. That's not what we do. We don't do it for the rest of their life. They come to us from anywhere between 10 and 20 sessions, very rare, unless they're on medications, which I do have some patients that come on meds. They take a little longer because we get them off their meds. Our goal, our end goal is to get them off that medication. So they're doing Isis while they're getting off the meds. They don't have those horrible side effects from the SSRIs. So they take a little longer, but the general normal person is 10 to 20 sessions. And we'll do twice a week until their symptomology is gone. And then we'll move them to once a week. If they hold from once a week and still feeling great, then they'll move them to once every two weeks. And if they're still doing great, they're done. Bird is out of the nest and we don't see them again. The Only time we will see an ISIS patient come back is if they have another emotional trauma and what I mean by that is that patient I told you about that didn't leave for a year didn't leave his house, that perfect fireman that had the life bump basically by the balls this guy went to Mexico and had a near death experience ended up in the hospital and almost died he was there for four days in the hospital, almost died he didn't recognize that as a traumatic event and he started to shift Delta wave started to act up again. He waited about two weeks and then he called me. He said, I'm not feeling so great. He said, you're coming in tomorrow. He came in, I saw him for two visits and I haven't seen him, it's been over a year.
1: So, you know, that's a good point. And you to know- To catch
2: it early, yes. you don't have to go through all those sessions. If you, rec- the recognition we've been pounding, everything we've been talking about with recognition is, if you get them early, and you don't let that delta wave and the axon damage happen, you're in and out. I had a guy who was the firefighter almost murdered. He was, and they got in a, a neighbor attacked him. And he almost died. And it changed his whole life, obviously. But he came to me right away. Within six months, he came to me. He was done in 10 visits, less than 10 visits, eight visits. He was already a week to week. He came for the tent just to come to the tent, just to like check it off. Oh, he was done because he he noticed, he had recognition. He went to therapy, the therapist referred him to us. He quickly moved through the process. He paid attention. He was listening to what his body was telling him. He was doing research. He was like, I know I'm not feeling right. There's something wrong. He didn't ignore it. He didn't start drinking and smoking and doing drugs. He paid attention and he responded. So he was in and out the door and I haven't seen him since. I'll get a text every now and then. Hey, just wanted to let you know things are still so good. I really appreciate it, thank you. That's what I get from him because he has what we call sustainability.
1: And, and in the fire service actually what's, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a new buzzword now in the mental health community with respect to first responders and it's resiliency. You know you'll see it all over now, resiliency training, all these nonprofits, all these people are popping up and it's great. It, it's very important and it, and, it, and and the word and it, it hits the nail on the head there because not only are we trying to get them early and not are we educating them, but how do we build resiliency so that if they do get the right treatment, if they do get the right process, um, how does that sustain them? And so, when when Jackie mentioned this guy who was retired and had been through this, when he had this experience, he had built up a resiliency because of ISIS. So as we talk about in the fire service, the way to build up resiliency is through peer support and through being there for our people. And that's great at the basic level. We can only teach what we know and we don't know what we don't know. So if we're first responders and we're all the mental health community and we're trying to build resiliency programs, if we're not educated about the neurochemical, the uh, you know the, the sympathetic freeze, if, if we're not understanding that part of the puzzle, then yes, we're building resiliency models, but why don't we build the best resiliency model that we can and understand that as we see someone who's had trauma after ISIS. It doesn't affect them as much. They're able to handle it much more calm. Their head is in a they're in a different space. They're clear. They're processing information differently. Uh, so it's because their body is in homeostasis. Everything is their mind and their neurochemistry is functioning properly. Uh, so it really helps to build that resilience that that we need so desperately. That everybody needs.
0: Now you mentioned your, your CISM program. Well, how, how does that differ from what has been typical in the fire service?
1: That's a, you know, that's a great question. And I'm glad, you know, you brought it up because I, I realized when we were talking about a minute ago, I didn't really get into it as deep as, as we need to, because when, when I spoke about the, Pre-identification of trauma. What's critical is that uh, as we move forward into these, if if you have a fire department and you have a, because the, the administration can only move forward if the the local, if the union is willing to move forward with administration. There there has to be. It's one of the things I wanted to bring when I came back to the fire service. Also, is understand that. Labor and management have to be like this. Okay, that that doesn't mean as a chief. I'm going to bend over and capitulate to every need or whim That that the Union wants fiscally because I have a, I have a responsibility to the citizens I serve to be as fiscally responsible as I can and operate with it within the constraints of my budget. So, when it concerns CISM, there's two things. And the reason I bring that up is because you have to get buy-in from your membership. You know, you can, you can put together this program and you can model our program, but if if your membership doesn't wanna do that because they don't wanna go see a therapist or that they're afraid if a therapist comes into the department that the therapist is gonna share with administration, that's not the case. But you have to prove yourself. You have to, you have to step off that ledge as a department and as a, as a union and say, okay, we're gonna try this. This works, it's been proven to work. So the ultimate, Dave, the ultimate CISM program has a uh, a mental health professional who is contracted similar to uh, what Dr. Goom is doing with command counseling where she has trauma trained therapists and has some contracts with cities where she's handling the mental health component. But, incorporating the technology into that as well. But the the point is is that there's two ways to to skin this cat. The first way is to try and have a mental health professional who is contracted with the municipality that does annual mental health evaluations. Those evaluations are not shared with the city unless, God forbid, that the firefighter is suicidal or they're in danger of hurting themselves, then that doc has a fiduciary responsibility. But, but if it's, if it's just about helping them through, you know, a probationary firefighter that's under a lot of pressure, maybe having some family issues. Now they go to their annual physical and wow, here is a contracted service by the paid for by the municipality that if it's voluntary for us. So if any of our members want it, you know, they'll sit down with the therapist and the therapist will help them. But what she's incorporated now based on our, Uh, what we've uncovered is a trauma score. So there's a couple of really good forms out there that are used in the mental health community. The ACE survey is one of them, and there's a few of them out there, um, but the ACE is kind of old, it doesn't really apply. So a lot of the trauma therapists have come up with these pre-trauma surveys. So what's important here is that there's two ways to do this. Once, if if you can't get buy-in from the union and the membership, and as an administration, you can still institute a pre-CISM scoring questionnaire. So so if we get into a CISM setting, you bring in your mental health professional, your peer support team, your chaplaincy only as support. And then at that point in time, you can hand that person a simple 10 question form. Then at that point, we'll rate just really quickly rate And then the mental health professional then realizes if one of those first responders has a high pre-trauma score, we we can't do CISM with them, Dave. We're going to drive them deeper down the rabbit hole. We're going to lose that person. So alternative strategies have to be put in place. It's not like we're going to, oh, they're going to single that person out. No, we're not going to single that person out, but we're going to educate the membership that pre-trauma scoring is a good thing because if you're in pain and your score is high, that CISM debriefing can be detrimental. So we can, two things, again, to recap, you can identify trauma scoring through an annual contracted mental health evaluation, or if you can't get buy-in and you can't get the municipality right now and in tight budget timeframes right now that we're living in, especially with COVID, with budgets being tight and subsequent budgets are gonna be even more difficult, to try to bring in new services and new ideas to do it at the CISM level right then and there. Once we pre-identify someone's trauma, we can can go one-on-one with that person. We can then, you know, I'm not saying we pull them out and we single them out, but the mental health professional can quietly say, you know, I think, you know, we should, you know, work one-on-one with you um, to give that person the tools they need to succeed. And this is a critical, Major change in CISM. And um, I can tell you that I brought this to the fire chiefs in Palm Beach County and their, this entire program and they're kind of head over heels over it. Some of them obviously can't afford to go full force with the whole program, but instituting even one little change, it, it, if somehow they can at least accept the fact that we need to pre-identify traumas in that person's life, that, that takes it to the whole another
0: level. One of the things that you just said made me think, of, I, I just recently had lunch with the uh, fire chief for Seminole County. You, you might know him. He used to be the Orange County fire chief, the chief of Hialeah, Otto Drozd.
1: I know Otto, yes.
0: I recently had lunch with him and and we were talking, he's like a master of balancing that relationship between labor and management and and the politicians and the, the community. One of the things that he told me was his approach is imagining the, the fire department and the community as one body and management administration is the right hand and labor operations is the left hand. And If they're not working together, you're going to affect the main body negatively. So you want both to have a good working relationship so that you keep the body healthy. Now, the reason I bring that up is because when you're talking about risk management and all that, a lot of times organizations, they're looking at, the, the bottom line, uh, managing the the cost of will this if we pay this much, what's the return, or do we cut our losses and just you know terminate this guy? Um, i I thought that it was pretty interesting how you related the the mental health aspect to the overall health of an individual, how mental health affects cancer rates, the, that cortisol release can increase heart disease, lung disease, all kinds of different um, medical issues, where if you address the mental health aspect, you could eliminate a lot of the other issues therefore reducing the workers' comp claims and all of that stuff. So it, to me, it seems like it's more physically responsible to actually budget for this mental health initiative. And I'm wondering if maybe that's been your approach and how you address the relationship with labor and management and, and the politicians and how you've been able to get buy-in from, from both.
1: Yeah, yeah, well that's, that's exactly right, Dave. You know, I mean, Otto's a brilliant guy. He's a great guy, he's got a great reputation in the fire service and, uh, and he's right on point. Uh, and even though him and I haven't personally spoken about this, I think, you know, uh, in 40 plus years, I've kind of learned through experience what, exactly what you just referred to. Uh, but, but the way I think it's important For other fire service managers to tackle this problem is politicians and uh, those decision makers out there. Um, We know this not not only within the public service arena but also in the private sector. All, All of this entire world revolves around data. Everything is data driven and One of the things that I like to try to present is exactly what you said. What it is 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 if you look at how many of your firefighters are taking um, anxiety medications, how many of your firefighters are going to 20 sessions of therapy, but yet it's still not doing what it needs to or they're going to another alternative type of whether it's hyperbarics, whether they have had EMDR with a little bit of success, or or traditional biofeedback with a little success, right? But but yet still, these people are calling out sick. They're having performance issues. Um, in other words, they're not they're not getting across that finish line. So by looking at it from a data perspective and looking at the numbers of people, I mean if, if you just look at um, Let's go back and look at Dade County Fire Department. There's 2,500 approximately. I think it's not, I don't think it's 2,500 yet. I've been there in a while. I have two sons that are still there, but, uh, but I think it's 2,300 firefighters, 2,400, whatever the case may be. The point is that, it, that Dave, if you look at the statistic that, that we just gave and forget about, forget about those that served in the military, forget about those with head injuries, Just look at the base statistic that's out there, 30%, 30%, if you have 2,300 firefighters, that's 690 firefighters on Dade County Fire Rescue alone, that potentially have PTSD. Now imagine if they were in the military or injured, who hasn't hit their head on the 24 foot extension ladder? Who hasn't been in an accident? Who didn't fall off a bike as a kid? So those numbers are astronomically higher. So I like to go back and say, well, look, what is this costing us from a risk management perspective? Okay, lost work, lost efficiency. How many firefighters do we lose? When we lose a veteran firefighter because the job took their job, that's extremely costly. Now we've got to go back and hire someone else. We've got to train them. It's gonna take us a year to get that person, you know, trained and off probation, but they're still not gonna be where that 15 year veteran So it takes a tremendous toll on an organization. And by looking at it through data, by looking at it through that fiscal standpoint, that begins to let those individuals that, and and I'm not dissing it when I say it, we we lovingly in the fire service call a lot of these people that are the administrators and the key holders of all this, the pencil pushers. It's not a diss to them, that's just what they do. But the point is we have to educate them. If you don't educate your politicians, if you don't educate, just like we're doing with the mental health community, before we began to teach the mental health community, there wasn't this understanding of this correlation. So we have to educate the politicians. We have to educate those of the the key holders to the budgets to understand the importance of budgeting an effective best practice mental health program.
0: That brings me
1: to another
0: Question: You mentioned the the research that you did, the paper that you wrote with Dudley. Where would I access that? Where would the listeners access that? Just well,
1: to I have it. It hasn't actually been been officially published in any journals yet. It's a paper we've written and we've distributed. I distribute it to um, agencies that want to go ahead and look at our CISM policy to see if they want to incorporate some of the changes we have. And I I can send it to you and you you can feel free to share it with any of your listeners uh, that may be interested because there's a lot more information in there. That that, uh, paper really goes not only through the science of uh, of trauma, but how to prevent uh, disasters in CISM, but also goes to the heart of, of therapy, of when to incorporate talk therapy into your mental health program. That's a critical key component. Uh, one of the other things I think Jackie was just gonna say, and, I, and I'd like to just expand on it. And, and you had mentioned it a second, and if you've got to talk on it too, it's the trust factor. When, you, when you're, let, let's say you can, as an administrator, you can influence your, your politicians and key holders to go ahead and let you budget for this. Well, this entire program is based on trust. Just like what you said with Otto, Otto is successful because he's been able to build trust. Our success comes from those seeing that what we're trying to bring forward has validity and efficacy. This isn't this isn't about trying to um, you know this isn't a monetary thing. This is this is a mission to to save lives to to not be to not have to see another one of my brothers and sisters die of suicide not only that for them to have good quality of life so trust here is the key and that's what the problem is is labor and management there's always there's been a lot of distrust you know so so to me breaking down those barriers proving as a leader that my members can trust me that i have their best interest at heart now i'm going to hold them accountable you know i'm also that fire chief if you if 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 this isn't mental health related and, and you're not doing your job right, you're gonna be held accountable. But, but, but in a way that is empathetic in nature and, and listens because that problem may be
2: associated to a mental health issue, right? And that's what I was getting at is, we look at the numbers and it is unfortunate, but the bottom line is cities and municipalities have to be fiscally responsible. If you're gonna look at the numbers, you also have to consider the fact that you have a firefighter that is in that bad place and he sees how badly the previous firefighter was treated. And that guy had seen the previous guy get treated poorly. Firefighter after firefighter after firefighter lost their job because of the job. He's less likely to allow the department to help him because he's gonna recognize that it, it, it wasn't worth it, it didn't work. So why am I gonna trust them? So if we can build that trust and recognize that the more that that building block grows and people trust in the department, they're less likely to find themselves in a bad place because they're gonna reach out sooner. They're gonna know the department's got their back. Sure, in the beginning, it may be a little bit costly, but in the end, it's gonna be less costly because they're not gonna be going to the doctor They're not gonna be missing work. They're not gonna be using their sick time and all their leave. They're not gonna become addicted to drugs and end up in a rehab that we know is extremely expensive. So we take away all those factors by building trust in the beginning. Get the buy-in from both teams, let them work together as one, and we've solved the problem.
1: Additionally, additionally, um, Dave, it's, it's bringing the changes in peer support outside of the first responder community. And what I mean by that is, what, what I'm trying to do right now in our city um, with, after we revamped our peer support team, and, I, and I'll talk to you a little bit about how we did that and what the goal of, a, of an effective peer support team is. But But the point there, Dave, is that as I have said to, to, to my city is that peer support, this model needs to be carried forward throughout the entire city. If, if I'm in the building department and I have an employee that has issues, um, now I, have, I can have a peer support team in place where I've got those folks in the building department that recognize it. I could have someone in the finance department in risk management, I could have someone in any, and it's not just about the fire service. Peer support teams actually, if you, if you do any research at all, if you Google peer support, peer support actually started in France in the 1800s is where the first official peer support team happened and it happened in, in, in the hospital setting. They were, there was a lot of uh, frontline healthcare workers. I'll just use that term because it's, it's popular today. Back in the 1800s, who were having a lot of issues because they were treating a lot of sick people. They're, you know, they, they didn't have the mental health, you know, work that they needed. And so they began to say, well, hey, I'm gonna have this guy go and, and be there for this person if they need help. And so that, so peer support actually is, you know, was developed, you know, in the mid
2: 1800s. And it's true. You think about, it's not just the fire service that's struggling. Think about all the children that are struggling right now with COVID and families that, have, that are used to socializing and being out and enjoying life, but they aren't. The stress factor is, I mean, we're a lot busier than we were a year ago, and, and it's due to COVID. And it's not just first responders. First responders are definitely healthcare providers and firefighters are feeling the crunch of COVID I and mean, fight or flight every day time they run a COVID call, there's this fear brought into them, but it's also our society, they're afraid to go out. So we're putting them in a fight or flight as well with all the fear that's being brought out in the media. So it's, it's become not just a fire department issue, it's become a society issue. And recognition is it's, it's our first line of defense. We can't recognize the people that people are struggling and be there for them. Our society is going to be in big trouble. Yeah, and in that peer support model,
1: what I talk about is lines of defense. What are, what are your lines of defense? So the first line of defense, if we just kind of look at the fire department model for a second, your first line of defense is the men and women that you work with on your truck, you know, and the station. That, that's your first line of defense. It's utilizing those wonderful tools that all the people in the last 10 years have put forth to educate. So we've educated our people on recognition, and we've recognized that we need to be there for each other. So the first line of defense is at company level, that station level. We next take it to the battalion level and then beyond. But but the second line of defense is that peer support team. And in order to have a peer support team that has buy-in and trust and efficacy, it has to be one that's driven and run by the membership. And the way in which we choose a peer support team is through what we did and what we'd like to suggest other departments do is you put out a survey. You do a survey of every one of your members on the department and you ask mental health related questions. You know, uh, do you believe in peer support? Would you be a member of a peer support team if your fire department has one? If your department has one, do you think it needs to be improved? So you you get buy-in uh, you know, I'm big on statistical data and statistical analysis. Well, so one of the best ways to prove your data is through survey. So, uh, and, and, and it's, whether it's morale, whether it's equipment, whether it's mental health, we as administrators should be constantly surveying, just, just like we do as administrators when we survey uh, the patients who are transported by rescue and we do customer service surveys. So now let's internalize it. Let's survey our own people. So, and and the last question is, who would you recommend, who would you nominate that, or who would you trust to go talk to? Who have you gone to talk to? Who is that one gal or that one guy in the station who's got the most empathy, the person who can sit and can handle and listen to your life and your problems? You know, the firehouse is a microcosm. I always say when you we sit at that kitchen table. There's a, a firehouse lawyer. There's a there's an electrician. There's a plumber. There's a there's a marriage counselor. So, so so the point is is that you you put out a survey. You get the the members to nominate those individuals. You then tabulate this list of nominated individuals. You then have to have administration be a part of it, where you incorporate. Uh, The the local will choose who the, the union wants. You come together, you interview with your mental health professional also. We actually brought a mental health professional into the interview process, where we interviewed every one of these individuals who are nominated on a list of criteria to determine if they would be good candidates to be peer support team members. Once we establish this list of peer support team members, Now we fall back on getting them certified. These individuals have to be certified in peer support. Now, another important thing to realize and a lot of departments and a lot of locals and a lot of folks, you know, they're, you know, why would I go talk to Lieutenant Smith? He's more effed up than I am. Well, you know what, what mental health counselor do you know that doesn't have issues? We all have issues, Dave. That's life, but That doesn't mean that person doesn't have my best interest at heart. And if I train that person how to be a peer support team member, they can't help the organization. So now we, and the IFF, God bless them, the IFF is giving grants for peer support. I have to give accolade where it is due. Uh, And so there's grant money available to go ahead and bring it in to, to do peer support training and then develop a policy on how you're going to deploy your peer support team. And then we take it to the next level also with canine therapy. We can get to that one (laughs) a little bit into that later as well.
0: Now, I wanted to uh, bring up the mended minds that that you're a part of. You're the uh, executive director or did you found mended minds? And maybe can you talk about the, the the mission of Mended Minds?
1: Sure, sure. Well, Mended Minds was created as an entity to be able to utilize this technology and bring it out to all those who serve and in the regular community as well. Uh, Mended Minds has treated a lot of folks from the Parkland shooting. So it's not just, it's, as Jackie said, you know, it's not just for first responders. We kind of took it one step further because in, in order really to be able to affect the most people and do it in a way where you know it's not there's no cost so that that's the goal because again it's not about money it's about who can we help and how and and to me the best way to do that um is through you know the nonprofit. so we we created Mended Minds Cares Foundation um uh, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to treat frontline healthcare workers first responders and as well as those who have suffered uh, from physical and emotional trauma at no cost to them. Uh, So that that entity is in place to try to raise money to treat people for free. Um, Additionally, there are a lot of ongoing clinical studies um, on the technology. Different universities have authorized studies to be conducted. Right now there's one uh, from the University of Texas Tyler uh, which um, Mended Minds is a part of, where the goal there is to treat 100 first responders um, at no cost to them and then utilize that data with respect to efficacy for um, anxiety, depression, and addiction, uh, as well as mild to moderate traumatic brain injury. So those, those things on that particular study, but in order to do that, in order for us to initiate our part of that study, is, is getting funding through the nonprofit uh, to be able to treat those first responders for free.
0: When did uh, you form the, the Mended Minds Foundation?
1: Well, Mended Minds Foundation was formed about a year ago. Mended Minds itself was formed about four years ago. Um, and uh, so Mended Minds Cares has been around a year. The problem is is that uh, we haven't really gone out to try to raise a lot of money because right now with with covid you know there's it's difficult to do fundraisers and you know we we've actually participated as an organization and donated a lot of money to different uh, mental health groups and organizations uh, in fact mended minds was part of the broward sheriff mental health summit you know they did some fundraising activities but we also did some work with um, veteran makeover and brand star brand star cares which is a uh it's actually a, a movie studio, a television production company here in South Florida that produces the Montel Williams show veteran makeover where they go and they, they make over a, a veteran's home uh, every couple of months, you know, at no cost to them. And they focus on, on the veteran community and what, what we can do as human beings to help our, our veterans and those who serve. So, you know, we, we, we've been involved in a lot of other philanthropic activities out there in the community to donate time and money. Parkland Cares Foundation you know, is another one we've been involved in, in some of their events, but you know, we haven't actually gone out and, and beat the band uh, yet because of COVID and, and our inability to put together some large fundraisers. So you know, in, in terms of, of, of trying to acquire donations, we're kind of just really at the beginning of that stage and putting together some fundraising activities.
0: Did you want to touch on the canine therapy?
1: actually, i'd I'd love to because it's funny because as we do this interview, you know you have your your dog there somewhere, and we have ours here, and I think that a lot of us really love animals. But you know there there is actually statistical uh, evidence out there that uh, that even just having a dog in the room lowers your blood pressure. Uh, brings your, your fight or flight down a little bit and makes you more calm. Uh, people who own animals, they they, they statistically live longer uh, than than those who don't. And so kind of using this and seeing this, that there's actually a, a captain in Dade County named Camp Sean Campana who put together a wonderful program for Dade County that's actually very, very groundbreaking uh, at bringing in uh, animals within to the fire service and then from kind of what, with the work she's done with Dade County Fire Rescue, we're kind of taking it to the level where we're offering canine therapy in kind of the way she is in a two tier where we're going to be bringing in uh, dogs into the stations on a routine basis. We have uh, someone up in our city that was a retired head of parks and recreations that actually has a couple of, of certified canines that he'll be bringing around to the stations for just station visits. But ultimately the goal, tier two, the goal is to have trauma certified um, dogs that we bring into CISM settings. Because immediately, I mean, if they're not dog lovers, then you know that's fine. But what we did there, Dave, is we did another study. And I'll tell you, this is interesting. In the history of our department doing studies, the study that has brought back at, at a 92% level, most most studies, we know our firefighters very well. And you know, most things we put out will get about a 50% response rate. You know, we had a 92% response rate with the questions we asked. You know, how do you feel about dogs in the stations? Do you have allergies? We, you know, you have to address these issues. Do you have a fear of animals? Because some people flat out don't like dogs. So we have to try to break that barrier as well. But to me, it's just another tool on the wheel, anything we can do for our members, anything we can do to improve their mental health. You know, we talk about statistically the ways in which we can help all these municipalities from a fiscal standpoint. We haven't even talked about the ancillary benefits about this firefighter's family. This firefighter that had addiction and anxiety and PTSD and depression, if we help that person, Look at what we're doing for his family or her family and all those other lives that we're touching. So the picture here is just just so much bigger and there's so much to talk about within this space that we can talk for days.
0: Now that we're on dogs, I want to tell the story about Victor here uh, for the listeners.
1: There he is. Hey, bud. Hey, bud. (laughs) What a beautiful
0: dog. There is a nonprofit organization in Itasca, Texas. I was introduced to this amazing woman, Linda, who runs Good Canine Academy. And what she does is she provides service dogs to veterans and first responders with PTSD. So Victor here, he's a Belgian Malinois, and he was donated to uh, Good Canine Academy. I believe he was an owner uh, donation. The the person, for whatever reason, couldn't uh, keep him. Um, There's also uh, government agencies that, for whatever reason, the dogs, didn't complete their training because maybe they didn't have the temperament to be an attack dog or they didn't have that drive to, you know, sniff out drugs or explosives or whatever. So they're donated to Good Canine Academy and Linda works with them, trains them up, certifies certifies them as uh, service dogs and if somebody applies and it, it qualifies for a PTSD dog, she has them out, brains with the individual and the dog over a period of days or weeks, however uh, long it takes. And um, she's got a big facility that she's actually uh, installing, I want to say 20 little homes on site so that veterans and first responders can come and stay there while they're training and and getting paired with a dog that's awesome well so one of my one of my things is uh, and i'm sure people out there in the audience can relate you know i have nightmares and it's not all the time anymore i've gone through a lot of treatment so I'm, I'm a lot better than I used to be. But when I do have nightmares, it usually wrecks me for several days. You know, it can put me into a depression, that sort of thing. Well, what Victor does and uh, what Linda told me is that you can't teach a dog how to do this. It's just something about them and the bond with the, the individual. He somehow senses when I'm having a nightmare, he'll come and put his paws up on the bed and put his nose right on my neck and like blow out until I wake up. And then he'll sit down and put his head on the bed and insist that I pet him. And there's been a couple of times where I've woken up like, in that fight or flight, and you know, pushed him. And, uh, and he just comes back and he's like, No, you're gonna pet me. And he'll insist that I continue to pet him until I just kind of even out, relax. And then he goes and lays down, goes back to sleep. And it's the most amazing thing that uh, he's, he's such a, a great dog and it's just been amazing so you know for people out there listening that may think a dog like victor help them you know good canine academy i have uh contact information and stuff available on my website i've posted stuff about uh them on my social media so yeah it's it's a great organization um and I would agree with you, dogs make, make things so much better.
1: <laughs> they, do, they, do. I, they do and I'll tell you that some of the work that Captain Campan is in with Dade County is and the dogs that we would be bringing in because ultimately tier two is not only to, to do what I suggested but to have the dogs living back in the firehouse again. That's one of the places we're gonna get to eventually and uh, and she has access to those Another group that has uh, greyhounds that they uh, that actually are very good for trauma and uh, have some very good innate skills as well. So we would be bringing in donated dogs as well, which is a, a beautiful thing to help. To uh, not only are we helping our first responders, but we're rescuing these animals who were uh, who were battered and abused. So you know that's a beautiful thing. You know, Dave. It's a win-win. It really is. So you know, Dave, I. I I really wanted to, you know, um, you know, we were so excited, you know, to have this opportunity to, to really be heard and to let your audience hear some of the, the work that we've done and the changes that we really want to see happen. And at the end of the day, it's to just try to help improve people's lives and, you know, show good leadership, show good empathy, be good first responders and, and live that true life of service. You know that's that's what we do. We we live a life of service. I talk about it all the time. And really, I kind of want to talk about something that you know is very near and dear to my heart, and um, kind of appeal you know to your audience for some help because you know Jackie, who's been a first responder for many 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 years, and you know I uh, one of the best firefighter paramedics, as I said earlier, I've ever seen not just because she's my wife, but because she is. And, and I, I really truly believe she's an angel. She's an angel among us, the work that, that, that you do and the people's lives that you touch, the work that you've done for 30 years in the fire service. But, you know, Jackie um, unfortunately is, is suffering from extremely advanced kidney disease right now. Uh, and she's at the point where she needs a kidney transplant. Uh, and so we, we've actually had a couple of donors volunteer, but they uh, they weren't able to make it through the medical clearance. Um, I myself, at almost 60, I'm I'm getting ready to go through the process, kind of as a as a backup plan. And, and of course, I would I'd give my life for this woman uh, who's who's dedicated her life to others. But I, I just hope that someone maybe out there hears this story of this wonderful woman who's dedicated her life to serve others. That you know, might want to, you know, step up and, and offer a kidney to help save this beautiful woman.
0: When we spoke yesterday, you, you told me about a lot of uh, different ways that people can get involved, even if there's not a, a blood type match, there's like the round robin. Correct. It's a donor
1: exchange program. So she's on right now, the cadaver list the cadaver list usually runs three to five years. Um, there's also a list right now in this country, there's a lot of, which is a really a wonderful program since hepatitis now is 100% curable. Uh, there's a lot of much younger people who have hepatitis because they have basically were addicted to drugs or led a very promiscuous lifestyle. But the, the kidney actually is, is probably one of the most resilient organs in the human body. So. You know, we can see a 20 to 30 something year old who maybe led a very um, challenging lifestyle, let's say, who passes away from an overdose, but was on the uh, donation list. So although the rest of their body can't be used, the kidney can actually be used. So Jackie's on that list as well. Uh, But the the goal with Jackie is once, once she goes on to dialysis, the prognosis becomes very, very different and um, she's at a very low kidney function right now. So we're really kind of pressed on a timetable and ultimately statistically, going back to statistics, the, the live donor, um, actually a live kidney is the best kidney. There's about a 50 to 60% chance of a 15 plus year uh, success rate with non-rejection of live kidneys. And so, you know, how do you do that? How, if, if, the, if you have two lists, one is a year to two, one is three to five, she won't make that list. She won't survive that long. So, so the goal and what I've heard is, is they have these exchange programs where, let's say you, Dave, for example, you're, I believe you set up B, your blood type is a B. So you, for example, who would not be compatible with Jackie could say, okay, well, I'll donate. And basically, I think about six or eight months ago, there was one of the largest round robin donations in the US history where they had 60, I think 62 or something like that, kidneys transferring all over the country. Because you, let's say, might not be compatible with Jackie, but someone in New York might be compatible with Jackie, or one of your listeners in California might be compatible with Jackie. And in that case, the, uh, our insurance company pays for them to be vetted. They pay for all the medical because you have to be thoroughly cleared and vetted. And then once that takes place, you donate your kidney, they find another kidney for Jackie. So basically it is this round robin exchange and it, it's just a, a beautiful program that's, uh, that's helping to save lives. Cause that's, that's what happens. We might get someone in, in, you know, in Chicago that, that comes out and says, hey, you know, I'll step up. Uh, so, you know, it's a great program that eventually would help to get Jackie a live kidney. Because, because honestly, I might not even be compatible. I found something very interesting that because Jackie and I had a child together, and even though we're both the same blood type, her body recognizes my blood because we've had a child. So we're in the process of making sure that she doesn't have antibodies to me and I still have to get medically cleared. But the point is, it certainly would be nice to get a 20 or 30 year old or even someone in their 40s. I mean, I'm pushing 60. Not that I'm not willing to do it. I will do it to save her life, but you know, a much younger person would be, it's better for them because the surgery is much quicker for someone that's much younger. It's a two or three day stay in the hospital, one week out of work uh, and they're back to work. Now, if it's a first responder, obviously that's, they can't go back to strenuous activity for three or four weeks. But uh, most folks that are not in the first responder community that anyone listening that might want to donate, you know they've got about a one to two week downtime after donating. Uh, not only that, anybody who donates goes to the top of the list. So that if, if, if I donate a kidney and I'm down to one, it's like putting one in the bank. So if God forbid something were to happen, you go to the top of the national kidney list. Uh, it's a cadaver kidney, but
2: at least, you know, you go to the top of the list. And the surgery for someone donating is very basic. It's laparoscopic. They're in and out of surgery in less than an hour. It's very quick completely different than the recipient's surgery. Mine's a four to five hour surgery and a two-week recovery. I mean, I won't be able to come back to work for about two months.
1: Yeah, and there are complications because she has cystic kidneys and liver, which are just huge. So they've got to take both kidneys in order to put one, where typically most kidney patients that don't have cystic kidneys, they'll just take one out and just let the other one be there. But she has no choice but for them to remove both. So this becomes the procedure in and of itself is, is going to be uh, you know, pretty major for her.
0: How does one go about signing up to, to donate?
1: Well, any, anyone who's interested, Dave, I can share uh, an email address with you. They can shoot us an email if they're interested or reach out to you. And then you know, from there, uh, there's a website Uh, We're actually, Jackie's actually getting the transplant down at uh, Jackson University of Miami. Uh, They do, they're probably one of the world's top, if not one or two or three in the whole world in terms of numbers of kidneys. So once we begin to get some more folks that are willing to step up, then you know the first step is for them once that they let us know uh, that they're gracious enough and we'd be so grateful for that and, and blessed. But once that occurs, then we would give them the website where they get on and they do a, a simple questionnaire within 24 to 48 hours. The representative calls and does a more lengthy questionnaire. Uh, then they go ahead and just do the insurance approval. They do the testing and, and literally within, you know, two to four weeks, two to six weeks, if that person, depending on that person's schedule, uh, would be
2: able to go ahead and have the surgery. Miami Transplant's extremely thorough. They did 180 kidney transplants last year. Which is stunning. They have it done with science. And their main goal is to preserve the donor. They wanna make sure that that donor is not just physically capable of doing it, but emotionally capable of handling it. So when they do the questionnaire, it, it asks a lot of history questions. And then you'll be interviewed to make sure you completely understand the magnitude of what you're doing. And they'll also educate you, they'll send you to a website where you can watch a video of an interview between a physician and a donor. And the physician guides the donor on what to expect and what it's going to be like and the things that could happen and things that could go bad. And so they, they want you going in completely comprehending what you're doing. And they also educate the fact that we do, we have two kidneys. But the moment you take a kidney from a donor to give to a recipient, that other kidney within the first few hours goes, oh, wait a minute. Um, Okay, I'm here by myself, immediately kicks in and the body doesn't even know there's been a change. Because the donor, that the the kidney that's remained fully functions as if it's, it's in charge now. It doesn't miss the other kidney. The body doesn't even have any, doesn't recognize the change. But because that person has made that decision and done a life saving event for the recipient, if anything were to happen to them, they're automatically put at the top of the donor list. So they won't wait like I am waiting on a list. They don't wait, they could put on top because they've already given one of theirs, which is a good benefit. I like the way they have an amazing process. In Miami transplant would get that person out in one day. So the testing that they go through, they do it all in one day at the one vetting, place. The
1: vetting to make sure that they're, they're capable medically. And if they're far away, if it's someone in the state of Washington or California or New York, they don't have to come here to do the testing. They'll, they'll be able to do the testing where they are and then the results get sent to the Miami transplant team. And then the insurance company, Jackie's insurance company pays for all that testing.
0: What I, what I was thinking I could do is, well, on my on my website, hollenbachleadership.com, there's a resources page where I have um, a lot of different resources for mental health. I'm going to post this uh, episode on that page as well as um, the page for the podcast. But on that resources page, alongside of your episode uh, I want to put your your websites the research paper that you wrote with Dudley I'd like to put that on there as well and if I can post your email or the website that people need to go to if they're interested in donating I'll put that there as well and I'll share all of that on all of my social media as well. Sounds Thank great. Thank you, Dave. I Sounds appreciate great, Dave. that. Really appreciate that. We
2: appreciate all the help that we could get.
0: Absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, we, we have a common friend, Bull, Tom Hill, and he spoke very highly of you and he's the one that put me in touch with with both of you. The The work that you all are doing is phenomenal and, and I, I think it's going to, Change the face of, of mental health in the fire service or in public safety. Um, the more awareness we can get on all of that, the better off we'll all be, uh, including the communities that we serve. So, um, and, you know, I know that there's my, my audience is, is full of heroes that I, I know. There's going to be some amazing, something amazing is going to happen through this. I have no doubt that you're going to get your kidney.
2: Thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. We
1: can only hope and we can only pray. And at the same time, we can only hope and pray that people out there listen. People out there are willing to, you know, they're willing to step up. A leader needs, leaders need to step up. We, we, we need to be the ones to take care of our people, Dave. And it's not just for ourselves, it's for everyone. You know, it's 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 a natural progression. You know, it's like when penicillin was developed or when anything new comes along. It takes a while for it to be recognized and, and for people to understand why these people are bringing this forward. What is, you know, that's the thing in the fire service, everyone's, well, what is what is what is their end game? What is their angle? There's, there's no angle, the angle is, We've seen enough death. We've seen enough tragedy. We we've lived a life of service, and honestly, Dave, I'm going to be living a life of service until the day that the Lord takes me off of this planet. It's my mission. It's it's our mission. It's our mission. And I
2: don't think there's any greater mission in life. It's kind of like your mission now, too, Dave, isn't it? Yeah. You're bringing things forward to the public. You're 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 helping those that are helping others every day
1: you're part of that loop. So thank you for your work. It's amazing what you've done.
0: Well, one thing that I, I want to say before we close out is uh, I'm, I'm going to challenge the listeners. And, you know, this podcast is, is all about leadership, self leadership, walking the walk. I, I'm committing my kidney. And the more people that come forward, uh, I think, the more people that we can help. So if well, I know that my kidney is not going to go into your body, Jackie. But if it can get you a kidney, uh, it's yours.
1: Thank you. That's uh, unbelievable, David. That's so generous. And we really appreciate that so much. I can't thank you enough.
0: I, I want to say thank you one more time for everything that you guys are doing, uh, for all of our brothers and sisters, and um, you know, really, I'm, I'm floored. I'm, I'm inspired by everything that you've been doing. How you put yourselves forward to help everybody out there. And just the perseverance to, to make sure that this technology can help as many people. It's, it's amazing. And I, I really, I hope that this gets enough uh, listeners that more people take notice of this. Just moved by everything that you're doing and We're gonna make this this happen. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much and I just wanna say one more thing because I can't help myself. I'm the consummate motivator and I just wanna one more time tell everybody in your listening audience, take a look in the mirror. Every morning you wake up and you put that uniform on, look in the mirror, think about what you're doing. Think about why you're doing it. Think about why you're in this field and be there for each other Stay educated, keep moving forward, and remember at the end of the day, you've chosen a life of service, and there's no greater blessing you will receive from that. So thank you, David. Thank you for the opportunity. We appreciate being here with you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbockleadership.com for additional content. My goal is, and always will be, to add value to as many people as possible, so if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts, linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.